Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Comics Books, the podcast where your host Lucy Dancer, that's me, talks to my favourite comedians and comic writers about the books they love. Today's guest is an excellent comedian who has been featured on the Conan O'Brien show Alan Davies as yet untitled and the children's CBBC show The Dog Ate My Homework. I first discovered him as the host of the outrageously great The Comedian's Comedian podcast, interviewing stand-ups about anything and everything to do with writing and performing comedy. It's the very lovely and hilarious Stuart Goldsmith. Thank you very much. Hello. What a love. I was just because you'd said I could listen to that introduction and if not offer feedback, you said I'll change it if you want. And apologies for betraying a podcasting secret there. But I was listening going, no, this is nice. This is nice. And then you said the very lovely and hilarious. And I thought if I were a lady, I would go, no, put hilarious first. But I have the but I, I, I'm not. And I have the luxury, the, the mediocre white man privilege of being able to go. Sure, I'll be lovely up top. I'm I'll down with lovely. that. <laughs> Um, well, I was already nervous because obviously you could just tell me what I'm doing wrong. Oh, point. no, I hope I won't do that. I mean, it is in my nature, but I well, not because it's you, but because everyone. I'm an absolute prick for for kind of giving people unsolicited feedback and suggesting stuff. Well, I mean, we've barely been on like 10 minutes already. I'm like, Lucy, are you taking a backup? Here's why you should be taking a backup. I'm an absolute nightmare and I will try to be uh, uh, as humble as befits my actual status as opposed to my perceived status within podcasting. <laughs> do you know what i quite enjoy it it's like we're doing two in one we're doing a master class as well as a chat about the book. <laughs> i'm going to call it a master class an adjacency class yeah <laughs> so uh, we were going to try and avoid talking about lockdown the more that this uh series went on as i said to you just before we started we started this series in lockdown we mm-hmm. didn't that we would still be recording it remotely. Yes. On, you know, yes. Did, oh, did you not? Bless. <laughs> yeah. As soon as as soon as it happened, I thought four years. Dig in for four years. Four years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, to be honest, immediate, immediately I thought dig in for a year because I'm very pessimistic, but I also think it's good for planning purposes. So I thought if, if I plan for a year and then two months later it's all over, pleasantly surprised. Now yeah. it's obviously going to be a year. And so I've everyone's thinking it might be 18 months, so I've got bollocks, four years. And, <laughs> and then I just acclimatise myself to the idea of four years and then I'll be pleasantly surprised. It's how I live my life and it's a tremendous way to be unhappy all the time. Oh, good. So I'm actually not going to take that part of the masterclass. <laughs> so, you know, like, while we've been doing this, so I thought that this section of the podcast where I say, hello, you're a comedian, what do you do for a living? Yeah. Would, for the most part, not be very interesting because, I mean, it's interesting, but everyone does the same thing for the most part. They do stand up and I've already read yes. out a list of things sure. that have been done. But obviously now, actually, that's a much more loaded question. Like, yes. What, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, sure. Drive a van. I don't. I'm lucky I don't drive a van. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, anyone, uh, oh my God, where, where to begin after uh, Dishy Rishi's uh, incredibly, uh, I don't even know what the words are. My art escapes me. But uh, listen, I'm one of the very, very lucky ones. I was, I was connected to a small following before um, before lockdown happened. And so when the job element of my job kind of went pop, when the stand-up bit went pop, the stand-up had become, although it remains my main thing, the, the trunk of the tree, as Sarah Millican says, um, it's my main thing, but there was a lot of ancillary stuff going on. And now that has just come to the fore. So I'm really lucky. I have, I, I don't think of myself as this. I have to choose my words carefully. I am still definitely first and foremost a stand-up comedian. And I've been <laughs> lucky enough to do I mean, because I'm in Bristol, we had Lakota. I did the first gig back in the country. That was like a big outdoor thing. They had, they had 
verve and dynamism and crucially the right architecture to do a legal gig before anyone else did um so because of that and just my kind of connections through my podcast to the sorts of people who like having ideas and trying them i have been very well served uh for live gigs and i'm sort of back up and running as a as a live act as well um, although those are obviously tailing off as, this, as we draw towards winter and it's too cold to gig outside. For pussies, I should say, as a former street performer, as we know, if it's not February 9am and I'm on the cobbles of Covent Garden, you know what I mean? If I can handle that, we can all handle an outdoor gig. Um, but, God, honestly, trying to talk to me, it's like getting stuck in a maze designed by Christopher Nolan. Um, uh, nested point within nested point within nested point. I've been very, very lucky. I'm still doing lots of stand-up. I'm also doing loads of other things as well. I've never been busier. And I hope that I'm still being a good dad and co-parent because I hope that all the time I'm spending on the three or four other projects I'm doing is time I would otherwise have been driving up and down motorways. And I'm Mm. really happy not to do the driving up and down motorways anymore. And it's making me feel treacherous about stand-up, not the art, but the lifestyle. I've got kids now. My eldest has just started school and I don't want to spend the rest of my life being away at evenings and weekends when I could be hanging out with him because that's his only free time. So I'm doing loads and loads of stuff, a chat show. I'm doing talks to business about what comedy can teach them about resilience and authenticity and stuff, all based on kind of leveraging the knowledge of the last eight years of in-depth podcasts. And that's been very satisfying because I have the only podcast, the only comedy podcast, which isn't funny. You know what I mean? So I can't tour to, I haven't built a huge live audience off the back of my podcast because it's not funny. It's not supposed to be. But what I have been able to do is kind of be in a market of one for whatever it is that I do, which is sort of an in-depth investigation into not simply writing jokes and performing them, but also mental health, resilience, how you cope with the sort of endless agony of having to constantly create stuff. Yes. And and I've interviewed over 350 people about precisely how they do that. So I've sort of created a niche for myself and I'm finding it absolutely thrilling to be doing that. So that's what I've been doing. And I can talk about all of it endlessly. At some mm. point, you're going to have to mention books and I'm going to reveal myself as an absolute uneducated charlatan who's only <laughs> ever read books by white men. It's just, just so distressing answering your email and going, oh, God, I've, I've got to try and give the appearance of some sort of intellect. But it's nothing. I read only trash. OK, well, like I said, it also doesn't matter what you read. It matters that you read. Also, you have kids. So I'm going to be very interested in hearing how reading has changed for you with them oh um, yes that i can do and that definitely takes out the Stu's never read war and peace element of the of my collie wobbles <laughs> well, there you go you're fine you're absolutely fine um i feel like maybe i'm edging into your not funny podcast territory oh here. true no i realized as i said that this is I'm but you know what i mean yeah we we are similar in that this this is not a podcast designed simply to get big yucks i guess yeah, it's not yeah. a kind of riffing thing you're definitely in the in the territory so yeah but my be, it's simply because mine's called the comedian's comedian no, no, one no. would expect it to be funny <laughs> yeah. um so I think we will talk about books. Let's go straight in. Let's yep. start talking about books. Um, but I but I would also like to hear a little bit more about the other things you're doing. So we'll come around to some of those sure thing. things yep. throughout. Um, I guess I'd like to know how you 
began reading, what your first introduction to reading was? This is the question I find the hardest to answer. And I think throughout, my memory doesn't seem to function in the way that other people's do, that my wife's does, for example. I, I have very few really concrete memories of childhood. Yeah. If someone right. reminds me of a thing, I go, oh God, yeah. But I find it very, very hard. It's dogged me my whole life. Very hard to kind of reach in and pick a particular thing. I can't mm. tell you what's the first, what the first book is that I read. I know and one of the joys of parenthood has been reading books to my children and in reading them going, I recognize that picture. Mr. Noisy, when he's learned his lesson and tiptoes down the hill, that picture is kind of etched in my mind somewhere. And when I turned onto that picture for the first time in, you know, 30 plus years, I've really had a big emotional kind of wallop. And those happen, those happen all the time when, when you're parenting. Jess Foster Key was saying that when she's now reading some books to her son that her mum had kept from when she was younger, uh, she's discovered that maybe they are not uh, correct for our times. Oh, hundreds, hundreds of things like that. We've been, we're reading Peter Pan at the moment, the original mm. Peter Pan by J.M. Barry, and it's absolutely loopy. I mean, it's, it's really weird. Like what we think of as Peter Pan, what most people think of, what I certainly did, was the Disneyfication of it. Yeah. And this is, um, it's not, it's not like a Red Riding Hood where you go, actually, the real one is just full of rape and murder. It's not that bad. But um, the, the Peter Pan, like Peter Pan, it's not Never Neverland, it's The Neverland. And the whole thing is sort of a metaphor. We haven't finished it yet, but from what I can, what I can judge, it's the whole thing as a metaphor for the sort of dream state when a child is falling asleep. So it's a metaphor for imagination and a metaphor for youth. Wendy visits there with Peter. All of the lost boys are desperate for her to be their mother because they all miss their mothers. So there's all sorts of gender politics in it. Wendy is basically there as the concept of motherhood so that all yeah. of these boys miss being nurtured. Peter himself is a prick and... Um, Hook is a murderer and they just constantly kill each other and then come back to life and kill each other and come back to life. And the whole thing is this sort of soupy, it's almost like um, like it has a kind of Ulysses kind of quality. I've never read Ulysses. I'm dropping a thing to look clever. But what I imagine Ulysses is like, whereby it's a big, soupy, abstract monologue. It really feels like that. It's much weirder and less A to B than I was expecting. So yeah, you, you, you've got to keep an eye out. But it's not that... Um children's books are necessarily getting more safe because I mean when I pick up a kid's book nowadays I'm often surprised at how deep they hit with some of the storytelling and mate <laughs> yeah I mean I, I totally agree I don't I wouldn't say that they were safer and the th weirdly I was saying this to my wife the other day we have got probably eight books seven or eight books where a princess decides she doesn't want to be locked up in a tower and she goes off and kicks the ass of the wimpy knight and then go and does her own thing. We don't have a single book where a princess gets imprisoned in a tower. Like we're, we're so busy being kind of um, uh, making sure we don't lay any groundwork about, hey, this is a role of a woman or this is, you know, we really try and watch out for that. But as a yeah. result, all of our books now about princesses who won't be, you know, all of the knights are wimps. <laughs> you know, I came, I saw, I shocked, I awed. You should have seen me swing my sword. That is, of course, the worst princess, which is fantastic. But um, they're all terrible, pathetic creatures. And there's loads of strong women as far as the eye can see. Well, no, you know, I think it, I think it is good for them to see kind of where those stories have come from as well, though. You know, the reason we have all these stories is because we've had the other type of story for such a long time. Yes. Um, yes. Although whether he's four and I don't know whether like I can tell him a story. I don't know how much context I can give him. Mm. So I mean, it was always like we do try. We, you know, we 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 try. Yeah. 
But um, no, he. I, I am constantly. <laughs> listen, <laughs> I'm. It is no. It is no exaggeration to say that I cry easily. And one of the books I mentioned to you, Paper Dolls by Julia mm. Donaldson, the Don. Yeah. Right? She wrote the Gruffalo. She wrote. I mean, you know. She she wrote most children's books, it seems like. She has got the industry in her headlock. And if you're a smaller author trying to get noticed, probably you look upon Julia Donaldson as like, God, let me get a word in. But she has, she writes two sorts of books, either slightly pointless rhyming stuff like The Snail and the Whale, which frankly, mm-hmm. I could I happily never read again. And then, um, <laughs> and, and obviously as a parent, I have to read it a lot. Um, and children's books now. She, she writes sort of breathtaking stuff where I cannot get through paper dolls without, I can do it without crying now, but I can't read it in a normal tone of voice without going, like without swallowing my words as I'm reading it. Because I mean, I, should I spoil it? It's it's so brief. I can't really tell you what happens in it without spoiling what it turns out to be about. Well, yeah, no, so I, I, I read it. Did you read, tell me, tell me what you thought of paper dolls. Um, I also I, I I didn't cry, but I was very close. Was you very monster! Close. You didn't cry, but the bit where you realise that she's talking about memory, and you go, "Oh, that's what this is about." It. I did make that noise, though. I made that noise, and you're just like, <gasps> "Who's going to snip the paper dolls in half halfway through the book?" Spoiler alert! But <laughs> when you realise. That it is, and I, I won't give too much away, but th- that's what Donaldson is so good at on her ones. I mean, ugh, don't get me started on the, the smartest giant in town, Doggerel. But um, but the ones where, you know, it's like my favourite stuff in the world is like an episode of South Park where it's apparently something light and then you go, oh, that's what they're doing. And J- Donaldson is amazing at doing that. The paper dolls, oh, it's a nice little story. And they laughed and they danced and they sang. When it gets to the final... And they laughed. I literally tear up now when it gets to the final. And they laughed and they danced and they sang. And to me, what that story means is you have limited time before you become a memory. What you do with that time is up to you. So laugh and dance and sing. And it's about community and it's about family and it's about motherhood. And it is it's for me, it's kind of perfect art because it is beautiful enough itself. It's beautifully written. It's beautifully drawn, not beautiful in the sense of sort of saccharine, but like it is, it's, it's lovely to, the sounds are lovely to say, the pictures are lovely to look at and it gives you just enough meaning that it goes, there we go. What do you make of that? And I go, I make everything of that. I, I feel like we could talk about the kids books for a long time. <laughs> Mate, I- rugby tackle me to the ground and move, <laughs> move me on because I won't do it myself. <laughs> um, we do actually have an episode about kids books coming up. So um, <laughs> I'll let you know about that. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, sure. But I will I will now make you talk about grown up books. Um, I know you're excited to do that. So- <laughs> I'm just going to reveal that I only like one or two things and I read all of them in the series. And that's me. <laughs> I was going to say, so uh, obviously the Terry Pratchett book. Uh, Sir Terry, the wisest writer. I've never read a single Terry Pratchett book. Can I can I guess why? Is it because you've been put off by the cover art, which looks all bibbly bobbly gobliny and seems pointless? I think it's a few things. Yes, I think it's. Is it because of of the fans? Is it because you've seen a picture of him in his preposterous black hat? There are so many reasons not to engage with Terry Pratchett. And they are such a shame because the wisdom in those books 
Sometimes you have to grit your teeth. I don't care for the the ones about the wizards. They're all a bit sort of bibbly bobbly, you know. They're a bit real ale. But what's going on under the surface of them is the most brilliantly sagacious, if that's how you pronounce it. I mean, wise. I've just said wise. Double wise. The uh, (laughs) the most double wise kind of satire. And they are one of those things where, you know, again, it's about, for me, it's all about revelation. The the moment that, that hits hardest with me is mm. when I realise what's going on. And the Terry Pratchett books, particularly, and I mentioned, I probably mentioned, did I mention Guards, Guards? You said Guards, Guards, but you said it didn't really matter. It doesn't really it. matter. Guards, Guards is, he kind of started off writing it as a tribute to the people who rush in when the baddie says, you know, the leader of the baddies goes, Guards, sees him. And it's supposed to be about those people, the little people. He's incredibly good at changing the paradigm, changing the perspective of who we anticipate to be the hero. You know, one of the messages, so Guards, Guards turns out to be about the formation of the police, but he puts it in this lovely little microcosm world of this crazy little city. And so he's in control of all the variables. And so you see, this is what it must have been like starting a police force. So some of them are about what it was like, you know, peelers and bobbies and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the risk of co- the taint of corruption and and someone saying, we're going to do it differently now. And it's just full of proper stuff where you go, oh, this is a good man writing yeah. about how hard it is to be good when the temptations of corruption and legacy and all of those things are are in are there. And so he writes about how the police avoid becoming a militia and they avoid corruption. And then the, the police become, you know, it becomes about war and the character in it, the, you know, the best character in those books, apart from uh, Granny Weatherwax. Never mind. It just sounds so twee, but they're so, so good. Um, it's Samuel Vimes. And you follow Sam Vimes' career from being a beat cop to being the commander of the watch. And he is constantly, he's like a sort of kind of flat foot cop who gets risen, who gets progressed through the ranks by it's kind of by virtue of just humanity, by just doing the right thing, even when it's difficult. And it, they, if you can, like, obviously some people are there for the bibbly bobbly stuff and that's fine. I'm there for a lot of it. You know, I'm not into the yeah. wizards. It's, yeah, uh, I, I think I, you're right. I think a lot of it for me is that I've always loved sort of contemporary literature in our world, dealing with characters and emotions and that kind of thing. I think that's what I'm naturally drawn to. And yeah, so I think I think these sort of fantasy worlds, as I'm getting older, I'm kind of I'm enjoying them more. But the only time I've ever honestly said that I feel like I'd like to read something by Terry Pratchett is when I watched the documentary he made before his death that was to be oh. aired after his death. Okay. Incredible. Okay. And that was the first time I realised that there was a lot more real world underneath the sort of... It's all about the real world. They, they You know, it, like, for me... If character A says, I think this, and character B, you know, if that's soap opera, here's me saying exactly what I mean. And here's me saying exactly what I think. You know, the whole point about Terry Pratchett is there's all the stuff on top so that you can look through it. You can see it as a prism and go, oh, this is really about this. You know, it's about what's real. And the only way you can talk about what's real is by looking at what's artifice. So those stories are aimed at younger readers, and I cannot wait to get my son into Your first choice was Firestarter. Yes. Oh, I do remember reading that as a teenager. Yes. So this again, I wrote, I probably wrote in brackets, 
Firestarter, but pretty much any Stephen King would do. I've read all of them. I think I wrote Skeleton. I initially wrote Skeleton Crew, which is a book of Stephen King short horror stories that right. I read far too young. I read 12 and they gave me nightmares for days. I read at, at the age of like 11 or 12 on a, on a family okay. holiday. I tore through them. I was gripped. I couldn't put it down. And I became a dark, sad little boy because they <laughs> just, I was too young to be reading those stories. And they, you know, Quitters Inc., which is a brilliant short story about someone who he gets handed a card in an airport bar and it's going to help him stop smoking. And the way this company help you stop smoking, it transpires in this short story, is that they, you sign up, you basically sign a waiver and then they threaten you and they threaten your life and they threaten your family. And gradually they cut your fingers off if they they follow you constantly and if they see you with a cigarette they cut off one of your wife's fingers do you know what I mean and then that's that's the thing scarred me deeply I was 11 or 12 I was like the world is a terrifying place goosebumps you were supposed to be reading I was supposed to be reading goosebumps but I had that kind of precocious read above my level thing and and they're brilliant stories they're so well written Stephen King is a genius and just because he turns up in airports and is massively successful doesn't mean He's not a genius. His ability to get you into the mind of someone, his characters think like I think. They're somewhere terrifying. And for some reason, they remember the cover of a jar of peanut butter they had when they were a kid. That's how minds work. That's what Stephen King is so good at doing. And that's why often his films aren't, you know, adaptations aren't good because the films don't put you in the mind of the person. They just have the plot and the plot isn't the best bit. Well, you know what? Thinking of uh, making the films of these, you know, they're remaking the Firestarter film. I didn't know that. And I don't care. I've been, you know, good. hey, I've, I've been burned before. Slam. Um, <laughs> you know, what's good about Firestarter is it's a little, I read it maybe, I probably sorted out after Skeleton Cruise. Maybe I read it sort of 14, 15. I didn't seek anything out at the age of, listen to me. I probably found it in a, in a B and B and it was definitely, it felt like this is too grown up and not allowed. And there's a sexy bit and I'm not allowed this. It's about a little girl who is experimented on. Oh, you find that later she was experimented on. She basically is a pyrotechnic, pyrokinetic. I can't remember the word is pyrokinetic. Yeah. Because she, her parents meet in a sort of experimental setup. Something like that. Her dad can do this thing where he pushes people, just italicised. He just gives them a little push in italics and he can kind of get people to change their mind about things. He uses that power to break her out. But she's this dangerous pyrokinetic who starts mm. fires all over the place. And they're not called the firm. They're called the shop. The, the shop. shop. Yeah. It's like a CIA type organisation. Yeah. And it basically, I think the, the, the inspiration for it was the mk ultra experiments which the cia apparently did in real life where they gave acid to people and tried to make them psychic against their will and it's sort of about that i just wanted to know actually because you said that you read stephen king too young and freaked yourself out did you then continue reading freaking yourself out or did you give yourself a stephen king break no 100 percent. i just i started i began reading everything he'd ever read and now mm. i've read i would say almost everything he's he's read he's he's written sorry is Firestarter your number one? Oh, is it the best? No, I would say, oh, it's a good question. They've all got such different things to them. Like even Tommy, the Tommy Knockers, which he's publicly disavowed and explained <laughs> that he wrote it when he was on Coke and Booze. I love it. It's it's such, oh yeah, it's great. Yeah, the Tommy Knockers. Okay, so the idea, of course that sounds risible. You're like, who'd be scared of that? The point is it's a child's name. It's a child's rhyme. And so the idea of a child's rhyme, because it's a child, what it's about, it's so funny. 
it, it is funny in, in retrospect. What it's about is there right. is some sort of alien artifact in a small, outside a small town, and it's yeah. having an effect on the people there. And the effect it's having is that everyone starts getting really good at inventing stuff. Everyone gets a bit of a, someone's trying to mow the lawn and you walk past them, the character walks past them the next day, and they've invented some sort of weird hovering thing using half a skateboard, a bit of a toaster and a, and a battery that they've put. And it's like a weird hovering thing and it's a better lawnmower because they're all getting this sort of, they've all been given this gift of understanding the world differently. And then, of course, being a horror novel, it all goes wrong and there's a sort of price you have to pay and what have you. And it's really funny because you hear later, oh, he wrote it on coke and you know pills and booze and stuff and just stayed up and wrote it all over the course of several nights. It's about mania. And it's about, you know, it's it's not maybe not about that, but it's underpinned by, I'm just, I can't control myself. I just have to make and create and adapt and change and fix. And I can't sleep and I'm just ending up doing all this building. And it's obviously, it's his psyche screaming at him, Stephen, knock it on the head, have a rest. So, um, so even that one, it is, it is widely derided, I guess. I think, great, I could read it again. I could start reading it again now. I want to be inside the heads of the people. I would say a favourite. I couldn't pick a favourite without looking at a list. I mean, The Stand is a huge post-apocalyptic future. There's a huge, huge book, and we're arguably edging towards it now. Um, Under the Dome, the book is great because it's 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 very classic King in that an impenetrable, invisible dome suddenly appears over a little uh, town. And as a result, we just get to live in the heads of everyone in that town as they gradually go nuts and go, this is all very well. We've got everything we need, but we can't leave. I, I love that you said, oh, you know, I, I, I don't like to read things that make me feel depressed or down or anything. But really, you seem to have been stoking your anxiety for many years with Stephen King. Oh, God, thank you. What, how much money do I owe you? <laughs> You're absolutely right. I have. I have been stoking my anxiety. I, 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 you're absolutely right. I, I read that first one. I read Skeleton Crew and uh, it was brilliant and I couldn't look away. And I, I, it was like an alien artifact. I was like, go away from it. I can't. And it did stoke my anxiety. And that's exactly what I go back to King for. Yeah. See, I think you were worried that you wouldn't sound intellectual enough. But actually, I would say it doesn't matter whether you do or not, because when you talk about books... You are really animated and really consumed. <laughs> you read actually a lot, you know. Yeah, but I've read a lot of rubbish, or not rubbish. I suppose rubbish. I just, I just have this, this uh, preconception, I have this idea that, you know, I don't, I haven't read any Tina Hesey Coates, not even the comics. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well. Like I, I'm aware that it's very insular and it's me reflecting back on me, and it's me kind of just tickling myself and getting all excited by the things and I just and it's a regret and I didn't realize it at a time when I had loads of time to write and with the best will in the world now mm. I will intend to broaden my horizons yeah. and I just there's no time for reading you know the like parenting and operating like just to come back to what we were talking about at the beginning I've got four or five projects mm. on at the moment any one of which if it was the only thing I was doing could occupy all of my time any time I stop, I go, I'm fucking exhausted. I can't even sit and watch Money Heist on Netflix. I keep, I keep, I keep double screening and looking, checking my emails when I'm trying to relax in front of yeah. Money Heist or to give it its much better original Spanish title, House of Paper. <laughs> Everyone's been talking about Money Heist and I have not given it. It's moment. fine. I like the idea, but like any series, you go, this would make an incredible two movies. 
Yeah. Know, but really, it's like all the Marvel stuff on Netflix. Here's a three-episode arc stretched mm. over 13 episodes with a load of tedious A, B, C, D subplots where you're sort of going, oh, sure, why are we doing this? Why don't you just shorten it? I'd pay the same money for it. The yeah. exception to that, of course, is Dark. Have you seen Dark on Netflix? No, it's a German series. It's very. It's uh, It's not just a dumb time travel thing. It's German, so it's actually very oh, intelligent. Oh, and you have to read. There, you have to read the subtitle. That's most of the reading I've done recently. Is the <laughs> subtitles of Dark. It's the most com- complex time travel drama, and and it's about no, no, no. It's but it's about people. You don't even realize it's about time travel till episode three. Sorry. Yeah, um, it's a bit complex. So it's I don't know. it's so complex, but it's three three series and done. And by the final episode impossibly against all the odds they tie it all up beautifully and it all makes sense okay i like that then yes i I like by honestly by midway through season three you're like this is the final season this is how the fuck are you going to do this and they do it you magnificent bastards you did it the only book that you chose that was uh maybe a bit different a bit more instructional was adventures in the screen trade oh yeah yeah I might even have it here next to me. It might be, pathetically, it might be propping up a temporary desk I've been forced to build in the cellar. Um, <laughs> William, I'm gonna, I never know. Is it Goldman or Golding? I never know. It says Goldman here. William Goldman. Let, I'm, I, I'm not prepared to, I'm going no, to search Golding. him. William Golding, right, Lord of the Flies. Uh, yes, thank you. That's who I'm getting confused by. William Goldman, thank you. Right, and back yeah. in. <laughs> William Goldman wrote the screenplay for Marathon Man and uh, The Princess Bride, and yes. he wrote the book of The Princess Bride. Um, and so he's a novelist and a screenplay writer, and he writes this incredibly funny, salacious, rule-breaking, gossip-filled book called Adventures in the Screen Trade. And then there's a sequel as well, which is as good, frankly. And it's almost, it's basically a guide to how to write a screenplay a backstage salacious thing about Hollywood and an exploration of why screenplay writing is hard, why stardom is pathetic and immaterial and why stories work or don't work. And for anyone who loves story by Robert McKee, which is how to write stories, it's the perfect companion piece. And Mm. it's uh, two more white guys there, if you're counting. And uh, it's just brilliant and it's one of those books i think about all the time and it's related to everything and i can barely have a conversation without going well it's like that thing in uh, adventures in the screen trade because yeah. it you know it just i just got it i just read all of it devoured all of it and went oh there's a bit in i can't remember if it's in the first book or the sequel there's a bit where he says here's three stories taken from newspapers they're all brilliant stories they'll all make great screenplays which of them do you think could be best and he, he prints these three little clip out stories and you turn the page and he goes none of them and here's why and it's things like with this particular story about someone who did X 30 years ago and did this. He'll say, here's why it won't work as a screenplay. Who's your leading actor? What leading actor can, and this is pre-digital effects that we can arguably do now. Which leading actor wants to be the young person and which leading actor is going to play the older person because they're just so far away from each other that you couldn't get the same person to do it. But who's the lead? And you're never going to get Harrison Ford to do it because he doesn't want to do it. You know what I mean? And so he kind of gets into the nuts and bolts of almost, it's more to do with production really than writing some of it. But what's at its core is he talks about how stars can never be happy because if you're, I mean, he wouldn't have said Tom Cruise, but let's say Tom Cruise. You're only as good as your last couple of movies. Look at Will Smith. Look what happened with Will Smith's career. You know, you 
you're constantly under pressure. You're constantly looking over your shoulder. No one cares about writers, he said, and writers aren't necessarily happy. But if you're a writer, you're doing the actual work of it. And he says, if you want to be a star, good luck to you. I promise to stare at you as you walk past. He sort of feels sorry for actors in a way that reminds me of, um, you'll know, you know, Patton Oswalt, American comedian, Patton yeah, Oswalt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He tells a story in his stand-up, actually, I forget which special it is, um, about being a character actor and why it's better to be a character actor. And he talks about being at an industry party with an enormous buffet and no one's touching the buffet because they're all desperate. They're all slavishly following diets. They can't risk looking out of shape. I saw a photo of Chris Pratt this morning and he's gone all Hollywood leading man diet because obviously he's now a Hollywood leading man. And you're like, no, don't stop being Chris Pratt. But he tells it, Patton tells a story about going around just hoovering the buffet. He's got it all to himself and he comes around the corner and bumps into Brian Dennehy coming the opposite direction. You know, and it's like, hey, character actors, eh? So, you know, it's it's that sort of tone throughout. And I just think it's a, it's a fascinating and funny, scabrous kind of a, a book that's, again, really wise. Um, before we wind up then, uh, we always ask someone to tell us about their favourite independent bookshop. Oh, yeah. Well, that's easy. I'm in Bristol and I love Storysmith. Uh, Storysmith is on North Street in Bedminster and it is a brilliant little independent bookshop. I believe it's still open. I hope to God it survives the pandemic. But yeah, it's just really I don't have a huge relationship with it. We're sort of discovering it. Um, my kids like sitting on little bean bags and getting grubby finger marks over. The, sorry, so sorry, so sorry. Um, over the lovely books there. And they're just we don't go there as often as I would like to, but it's one of those places which is an outing in and of itself. And you can you can go there and there's little bean bags for the kids. And they can sit and you can spend a bit of time there and you don't feel like they're looking at you going, well, come on, buy something. You feel like they're happy that you're in there loving the books that they love. But then you do buy something. And then you absolutely, you don't go without buying something. That would be, that would be terrible. You just don't oh, go as often as you'd like to. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, thank you so much for talking to me today, Stuart. This has been delightful. And I really hope, enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. I think you came off as pretty intellectual. Oh, I hope so. I was really trying my best. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I, if I can say one thing, honestly, in my defence, I wasn't trying to appear intellectual. I think everything I've said, I've said honestly. I do worry that it's a very narrow window through which I'm perceiving the world, but I have spent uh -huh. a good bit of time at that window. So if that if that means I get away with it, then good. You win. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> I wish all podcasts ended with a sardonic, you win. You win. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Comics Books. Hopefully you've had a chuckle, learned something new, and most importantly, added some reads to your list. You can find full listings of all the books we talked about today in the show notes. If you enjoyed the podcast, it'd help us out massively if you could leave us a review on your listening platform. And finally, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Comics Books Pod. <laughs>